I'm Whitney Walker, and this is the Women Waken podcast, where I interview guests who are in the field of healing and spiritual work using their unique gifts of the divine feminine. We talk all about these amazing gifts that these particular guests have and how they're bringing them forth in the world. On this episode, I welcome my friend and new neighbor, Elizabeth Stitt. Elizabeth is an author, a previous school teacher, a mother, a stepmother, and a parent educator and coach. I was really excited to have Elizabeth on the show because I have not had an episode where we talked about one of the most sacred experiences in all of life, which is the giving of life, the birthing of life, the raising of life, parenthood. And Elizabeth is a fantastic person to talk to about parenting because she knows a lot about it and it's her life's work and her gift. Elizabeth founded Joyful Parenting Coaching and now helps parents to bring more harmony and joy into their experience of parenting. We have a really fun and joyful conversation. So take a listen, enjoy, and here's my guest. Hi, Elizabeth. Welcome to the Women Waken podcast. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. So much fun. Thank you for being here, my new neighbor. We're neighbors now. We are. It's the best. <laughs> it's very exciting. You're down in gorgeous Monterey, and I'm up in beautiful Carmel, and it's uh, it's pretty good. Hard to complain. <laughs> You've been here for just a year, right? No, I came in September of 2020. So, oh wow, okay, yeah, so bit bit more than a year and a half. Yeah, fantastic. And Elizabeth, you and I met back before this crazy decade started, back in 2018 or 19, when I was working at Fusion. Yeah, were you working at Fusion? Okay, yeah, Fusion Academy in Palo Alto. I think that's, we either met at an event there or some a networking event that I went while I was working there, but somehow it's connected to Fusion, which makes sense because of course you are a parent educator and a parent coach. So your audience and your clientele are parents. Yes. So where there are students um, is where I found you. Because yeah, you- Exactly. <laughs> And I thought I, I loved working at Fusion because I loved um, the idea of having an alternative option for kids that don't quite fit into a more normal structured education classroom or system. Yeah. And if that was important in 2017, 2018, think how much more important it is now. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think it's it's always imperative for, for there to be an awareness of how kids are engaging and learning in their environment, right? I think that it's... Um, what I've heard a lot of from many friends who are educators is that the classrooms can often be... There's too many kids. There's The classrooms are overfilled, right? There's like 30 more plus kids in one classroom. And it can be so hard to notice if everybody's keeping up and if everybody's engaged, and then when that happens, kids can kind of fall through the cracks and fall behind. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I found that there was a very high correlation too, that kids who are falling behind, they've got other ex- outside influences, outside stressors that are keeping them from being able to kind of show up and be fully present and to really participate in everything. And Sometimes it's social things. Sometimes it's things, you know, that are happening at home, death or illness or 
COVID pandemics or, or something else. But yeah, that kids, the, it's not a question of them being able to succeed inherently. It's that they've got all this outside stuff that makes it hard for them to get access to the learning that they need in that environment. And when you put them in a different environment, then, then they can focus on their studies and, and they can, can gain that confidence as students. Not to mention stay engaged just from an interest point of view. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I love so much about fusion is that they, they, it was tailored to, to kids who learned more effectively when they were one-on-one with somebody. And so all the classes were one-on-one, which was so great. And I love that they had a counselor there. I being a therapist, I think that just what you're speaking to, which is that sometimes it's about being in the classroom, but sometimes it's more, you know, external things that are happening in other parts of their lives that are distracting them and keeping them from being able to really, you know, be able to participate fully. So I think when, when, especially in elementary school, middle schools and high schools for kids to have counselors on sites, it's so important. Yeah, it is. And I haven't spoken to anybody at Fusion lately. I don't know if you have, but I wouldn't be surprised if they've seen an increase of students who are there because of school refusal. Yeah. Like they're just refusing to go to school in a different environment. And this is the best, you know, being able to be one-on-one with one adult in one little cubby study area rather than, you know, sort of vulnerable to, to everything going on. Yeah. Yeah, is enabling them maybe to show up at school. That would be my guess. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Wouldn't be surprised. So yeah, that's how we met is when I was working at Fusion and I learned and we got together and I got to learn more about what you do. And I thought it was so wonderful because as a therapist and, and a therapist that works a lot with teens, I know the um, challenges that parents face. Right. Well, and being like a, a person myself with parents, I know that my parents were challenged and but we see it all over the, you know, and I, and I was so excited to have you on the show, Elizabeth, because this is one topic that I haven't talked about parenting. When we talk about women waking that a lot of women do is become parents. I personally haven't done it yet, but most of my friends at this point have. And, you know, it's one of the greatest things you'll ever do. But I think also one of the hardest things that anyone ever does is to become a parent. It is. It definitely, it pushes, you know, I think that, that as a process of our own development, kids are sort of tailor-made to push our buttons and to find <laughs> our voyages and, and to kind of expose us for, for, for what we are in a way that, you know, maybe we can put on a show or cover things up for the outside world maybe even for a spouse, but kids are just unrelentless and un- unrelentless. Sorry. They are relentless in <laughs> being present and making their demands and making it about them in a way that really demands so much of us that, that it's a great way to kind of shine a light on the, on the cracks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so important for people to be able to embrace those cracks and see that it's not uh, a fault, you know, no pun intended, a fault line, but that it's not any, you know, every, anybody who's going to take on having a child and being a parent is going to have these things come up where they recognize, okay, this is my challenge point. You know, this is something that is coming to light for me when I try to step up and be, you know, 
a, you know, a way shower. Cause apparently essentially as a parent, you are, you know, guiding the life of another person. And that's a big task. You're a leader, you know, and maybe if you weren't used to doing that, it can kind of show us this is every, all of us have challenges in being a leader. And I, so I think that that's what happens when we become parents. And it seems that that's sort of where you step in Elizabeth is to allow parents to see what are my strengths and what are my challenges as a parent and how can I work on my challenges and then really work with more my strengths. Yeah. And here's the great thing. When we, when we own our strengths, even if they look messy, even if they, if they, even if they don't fit that definition of perfect parent, Hmm. when we own them and we see them as our strengths and when we are willing to shine light on where we need to shore up a little bit or what we're not so good at, the more we're able to do that for ourselves, the more we're able to do it for our children. Yeah. And so then rather than trying to impose an image of what we want our children to be, wish they would be, hope that they would be, we can just let them be. Yeah. Because we have accepted ourselves, strengths and weaknesses, that allows us to accept them with that, a similar kind of ease. Yeah. So conscious parenting would say that the absolute pathway to us being an effective parent is to be willing to pick up and look at our own stuff and to, to be able to, you know, examine it, the truth of it, fall in love with it, even with all its warts, and, and then be willing to change where, where maybe it would be beneficial to, for us to change. Yes. Yes. And how do you help parents do that in your work? Um, so the work I do, and I, and I will say that, okay, so here's my struggle as kind of a professional, because if I just put my, I am coaching the parent hat on, then I would really only focus on this conscious parenting aspect. Yeah. On the other hand, I realized that for the child who's experiencing that parent, they just need tools and tips and strategies put into place right away mm-hmm. because they need their daily existence to be calmer, more predictable, for their parents' reaction to be more reliable. So I'm always kind of balancing between, you know, what is, what's at the core of this? What's your why of this? Uh, what, what is it, why is this coming up for you? What are your values? What value is your kid stepping on that's having you react? What's important to you? And it is important to spend time with that. And at the same time, I would say about half of the work I do is, is what I call the low-hanging fruit, just the nuts and bolts of practical tips that can make things easier. Like, you know, a common one is kids get out of the bath, like three, four-year-olds get out of the bath, two, three, four-year-olds, and then they go streaking, running through the house. And rather, you know, the bath has been this calming activity and we're supposed to be winding down towards bedtime. And now they're running around all over the place and maybe they're pulling the cushions off of the couch and maybe they're pulling the cat's tail as they go running through. But that's the funnest part to get out of the bath. (laughs) Okay. But for the parent who was like, I'm 20 minutes away from 
getting my alone time from getting my off time, my downtime, mm-hmm. that is like, you know, I mean, that just brings up like a lot of feeling and a lot of triggers and a lot of sense of feeling just out of control and angry and frustrated and like, yeah, betrayed me, kid. Like, I was <laughs> so close. I was so close. Right? So, you know, for that parent, we can talk about why are you triggered? What can you do to be more patient? Blah, 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 blah. But the best tip is like bring the pajamas into the bathroom, lock the bathroom door. So you have a captive audience. Mm-hmm. So that as you get, particularly if you've got two kids, so that if you get one kid out of the tub and you turn around to get the other kid out of the tub, the first one hasn't disappeared down the hall. You now have two kids right here. You can get them into their pajamas, brush their teeth, take them by the hand, head towards bed, so that you guys can have that peaceful falling asleep transition, reading a story or something. And mm-hmm. honestly, it's, it's not great for kids in terms of going to sleep t- to run around. I realized, yes, running around naked after a bath is tons of fun. So fun. But it does not actually support kids getting a good night's sleep, going to sleep easily, getting a good night's sleep, and then being ready to get up for the next day. Yeah. And, you know, here's a difference in parenting. When you have... Uh, two working parents who need to get out of the house early, who don't have a lot of wiggle room, that puts a very different kind of pressure on us. You know, when there was a stay-at-home mom and you didn't necessarily have to get, you know, my daughter's preschool didn't start till 9 o'clock. If we didn't show up at 9, they didn't really care that much, right? You could show up at 9.30 if you wanted to. That was okay, too. Which meant as a mother in the morning, it wasn't as critical what the night before had been. So if we had had a crazy runaround, nudie, silly, giggly time, and that meant getting into pajamas took longer, winding down took longer, we needed to read more, sing more in order to get to that sleepy state, it was okay because I wasn't, if I could let her sleep later in the morning, I could let her get going slower, more slowly in the morning. We could get to school later. But for families, and honestly, it's most families have pretty tight schedules. And so now if you have a child who's hard to wake and is grumpy when you wake up, it just feels like this endless cycle, right? I had this I didn't get the sleep or the rest or the personal time I needed last night because bedtime took two or three times as long as I expected it to take last night. And now in the morning, instead of having a happy, bright, chipper child, I have a grumpy, recalcitrant, resistant child. Now getting up and getting dressed and getting out the door to school is hard. And now my experience of my child as I go off to work for the day is that this was hard. This was conflicted. And that just, it just piles up. Yeah. It just piles up. If, if you look at, you know, if, if, you, if you go to Google, like, why is parenting hard? Or will, parent ever, will parenting ever stop being hard? You, you know how when Google fills in the question? Yes. Like, 
you'll see those questions filled in because mm -hmm. those are top of mind questions. Yeah. Well, what, what are the top things that you hear from parents that are seeking out your, your help? Because you're, so your title is, is joyful parenting coaching. That's the name of your business, which what a beautiful thing. And that's, you know, I just feel like it's very aligned with, you know, my idea is sort of for, for women waken is because a lot of that is bringing the joy back into life, the joy, the enchantment, the, you know, just balance of things. And so that it not everything feels, cause I mean, I think, cause again, I have a lot of friends now who are parents and I've, you know, been around kids my whole life. I did a lot of nannying and this and that. And, you know, it, it seems like it's a lot of work and that it can feel like, how do you keep your, your identity as a, whatever it might be as a, you know, in your profession and in your social life and still be a parent and feel that joy. So when people seek you out, what is the number one thing or what are some of the things that you're hearing that are keeping them from feeling like parenting is this joyful thing, which I mean, it's kind of like asking like, well, what, what keeps your life from being like joyful and perfect and happy? Well, you know, because life has its challenges, but as far as parenting goes, what do you see mostly? As you can imagine, there's a little bit of variation based on sort of age groups, but mm -hmm. the most common theme is the sense of a parent feeling out of control and that the kid is the kid's temper tantrums, the kid's energies, the kid's reactions are kind of ruling the roost. So mm. there might be the sense that I'm not making my best parenting decision because I'm afraid of inciting my child. And I'm afraid of getting into this temper, temper tantrum, into this yelling match, this screaming match, this power struggle. And that's so exhausting and demoralizing because it's like a neon light going, you know, you're not doing it right. You're not doing it right. You're not doing it right. That a lot of parents ignore it or go around it or try to placate their child mm -hmm. or with like two, three, four year olds, they tell themselves, well, this is part of, this is the stage. This is the way that it is. They'll outgrow it. And the reality is some kids probably do outgrow it. You know, as they get into that school age stage and they kind of settle down into the routine of school, their focus becomes less about that new identity stage, that new, who am I? Like I'm, I do, I do, right? That's the two year old. I do like I am my own person. I'm not actually part of you anymore. Mm -hmm. And by six or seven, they kind of have a sense of that and they're at school and they're learning the discipline and the structure of school. And they're more concerned about their friends, but some kids don't outgrow it. And so the yeah. parent who hasn't been changing their reaction or putting any structures or policies in place so to support their child in gaining more um, social emotional intelligence and gaining more self-control now has a seven or eight year old who may have the emotional intelligence and the, and the self-control of a three or four year old. And that becomes really scary. And what sometimes happens is that Parents get through that stage. The kids do settle down in elementary school and they kind of go, okay, we're okay. That was hard, but we're okay. Mm -hmm. But as you know, from a developmental point of view, two, three, four looks a lot like 12, 13, 14. That again, we have the same task, 
right? The, the developmental task of a 12, 13, 14 year old is to separate from his parents, is to individuate, is to decide who he wants to be and, you know, do that whole business of putting on different hats of like, oh, like, who am I? What do I look like? And it's painful to, to separate from your parents because it's scary. So you get moody and you get combative or you pull into yourself, depending if are you a, a fight kid or a flight kid, right? If you're a flight kid, you pull into yourself, you pull a hoodie up over you, you put your earbuds in, you shut the door, you don't let your parents come in. And that's super scary to parents because they feel like they're losing their kids. Super scary, right? Maybe it goes towards depression and anxiety. And if it's a fight kid, it goes towards what can I do to, you know, I need to define myself as not my parents. So if my parents are a square box, I need to be as not square box as possible in order to decide who I am. And that can look like just like the two or the, you know, the two-year-old I do and the three-year-old I hate you, mommy, and the four-year-old, you're a big poopy face, right? That at 12, 13, 14 sounds and looks different. And at two, three, four, a parent, it can be kind of cute and funny, or it can be disconcerting because it's like, here's this little pint-sized creature who's pushing back against you. Like, you know, you're not the boss of me. It's like you're thinking like, yeah, I am the boss of you. And the kid is going, you're not the boss of me. And you're saying, yeah, I am the boss of you. And then the kid takes off as a nudie kid running around the house. And you're running after them thinking, I do not look like the boss of you. So there is a disconnect between who we think we are and how we're showing up. And if that shows up during the middle school years, it's just hard on everybody. Right. It's, it's scary on parents because the stakes are harder. It's harder on their egos because it's bigger and louder and more in your face. And there's nothing funny about it. Right. You know, if you're out of the park and a four year old, you ask a four year old, say, hey, it's time to go home. We need to go get dinner. And the four year old goes, I hate you. I'm not going and runs up to the top of the slide. There's something a little funny about that that maybe the other parents are going to be a little bit amused by. But the 13, 14-year-old version of that, which could look like, you know, calling you names, showing you the finger, um, if you're somewhere in public, you know, pushing a chair back noisily and angrily so it goes over, which is leaves you highly, highly self-conscious. So it's highly embarrassed. And again, this disconnect between, <sighs> I am doing the best I can do. I am working so hard to get it right. And it looks so wrong. Right? That is so demoralizing. That is not very joyful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that especially in the teenage years, I mean, working again with teens myself, it, it feels very, a lot of like disrespect, 
You know, the, the oh, yeah. little tantrums of a four-year-old feel like blatant intentional disrespect. Whereas a four-year-old, you can, you know, pass it off. It's a t- temper tantrum. It's they're just, you know, kind of venting and don't even really know what they're saying. But as they get older, it feels like they do know what they're saying. And there's there's intention behind their actions. Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, parents of teens might struggle the most is because then it becomes very hurtful. Um, and difficult to, how do I work with this? What do I do? Because, it, and it can be a lot of trying different ways to connect with your teen and to work with them effectively that just is met with nothing. Yeah. Yes. And it's useful if we can ground ourselves and stand in that place, you know, with a three, two, three, four-year-old, if we can stand at the place of my child's doing the best he can do for the skills he has at the moment. If we can stand in that same place with our older children and really be the voice of reason, be the keeper of the big picture, which is to say, you, I used to sometimes look and go like, oh, you are so 12. Like, you are doing just what you're supposed to do for 12. Like, you get an A-plus, Whitney, for being 12 right now. Like, (laughs) exactly. Finally. (laughs) Yeah, right? Like, you know, because what does it mean to be 12? It means your prefrontal cortex is under construction. It means your amygdala is swollen so that you literally are more sensitive. So when you, like, look at your 12-year-old go, why are you so sensitive? You know? It's great to have a little voice in your shoulder that's going more sensitive because the amygdala is, relatively speaking, gotten bigger and the prefrontal cortex is under construction, which means their ability to have a reasonable brain calm their emotional center is out of whack. That's why. Right? So it's not personal, as you said. Like, it's not insulting. It's not disrespectful because it's not about you. It's about it's about them, and they probably are doing the best that they can do at that time. And when we can extend that faith that this is just a stage, and the little shit you're being right now is not who you are, that's, you know, that's part of being 12. That's, that's part of this stage in your development where you, you are going through this super scary period of having to separate and then now you're out in the cold and that feels vulnerable and everything feels hypersensitive. And, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll see like a nine or 10 year old look at the behavior of like a middle school student and go like, why are they doing that? That's so stupid. I would never do that. And that same 11, 12, 13 year old at nine, would probably look at that situation and say, why are you doing that? That's really stupid. I would never do that. Because it's a nine-year-old actually has sort of a more um, together brain than than an 11, 12, 13-year-old. The nine-year-old brain isn't under construction in the same way. It's been building up its ability to reason and hold logic without a lot of emotional drama coming up. And now all of a sudden over here, you've got this middle school kid who's really being subject to a lot of forces. And I think it feels like, I think it feels like your body's betraying you. Right. Mm -hmm. Do you ever have that feeling like when 
you're super tired. You just had it. You're really like at the end of your tether. And maybe I know you've been ill recently. And so maybe yeah. this has come up for you. Like your logical brain is saying, you shouldn't be so emotional about this. You shouldn't be so upset about this. This really isn't that big of a deal. Right. But you are. But you are depleted. <laughs> yeah. You're like, upset. So your the connection between your amygdala and your like, eh. And yeah. so you have this moment of being completely unreasonable, out of control, pure emotion. Yeah. And there's still this little voice over there looking at you going, that's not reasonable. You shouldn't be acting that way. You know, yeah. you're a grown woman. Yeah. I've, I have times like that where it almost feels like an out of body experience. Like I'm watching myself and it's like, yeah. I can't believe I'm actually doing it, but I'm doing it when you're that over the edge and you're just so run down or tired or sick. And it's that extra thing. You just can't compose yourself. And it's, uh, yeah, it's upsetting for you to, to reflect on that and, and realize what a state you're in. Yes. Yeah, so I think it's super, super helpful for parents to remember those moments and to tap into those moments and to go, when I was in that moment, when I had come all the way down to fumes yeah, and I was still being expected to show up and perform, yeah, that's not who I am. It's just how I was being at the moment. Yeah. Or how anyone would respond when they have literally nothing to pull from in terms of reserves, of energy, of patience, of thoughtful thought. It's just... What what you, you they give what they have to get they give what they have which is very little, yes. At that so, point, yeah. So if we can keep that in mind for our own kids, then we can be present with them with more grace. Yeah. But how do you coach parents on that? Because when you're at that point, and you know, like let's say with a teen, that's just their behavior is just incessant and it will not stop and it's disrupting the household and it's upsetting and it's outbursts and it's yelling and it's slamming doors and it's, you know, bringing parents to their knees crying. How can you inspire them to, you know, open themselves to, you know, the hope that it will, it will pass and it will get better. How do you coach them through those times and, and to try and deal with a child that feels, you know, like they can't reach them? Yeah. So this is why this is why it's like we're always doing this balance, mm-hmm. um, and this balance is the sort of the emotional side and and the consciousness and the presence and and um, the patience, and this side is what are the purely practical steps that we can take to shift or improve the situation. So with a like you know the teenage with a teenager who, who, um, comes through the door, slams the door, throws down the backpack, says, I hate Mrs. Stitt. She's such a B-I-B-C-H. I don't know the swear <laughs> level of your podcast. You can swear on here. Okay, great. Mrs. Stitt is such a bitch, right? And your immediate response as a parent is like, high alert of like, we don't slam doors. We don't throw down backpacks. We don't call teachers bitches. You know, you are being entirely unreasonable. And so we kind of go. So like what I do in a coaching situation is like, like, okay, so how did you react? Like, oh, I got mad. I went yelling. I went threatening. I took away this, this, that, and the other. And then we go back and we say, well, 
How do you wish you had responded? If you had a do-over, if you were, I always think of, uh, I always think of uh, Disney, like with the birdies. Who's who's the character? Sleeping Beauty. I think it's Sleeping Beauty who has the little birdies or Cinderella. Have the little birdies around, and you know, if that's what I were, if I were Cinderella, if I were a cartoon, and I had the little birdies going around. Oh, there's a screaming child slamming doors in my house. Okay, like what would I do if I if I if I could get to that stage? And then we rehearse it, and then we practice, and you know what is a concrete practical step for a parent to take in that situation. <sighs> deep breath, right? Parent takes deep breath. Whoa. Oh, Whitney, sweetheart, you have had a day. <sighs> do you want to come sit down and I'll make you a snack? Or do you need some time in your room first? Right? So when we rehearse that, as a teacher, I used to literally write this stuff out for myself. I would I would write it in German so they couldn't couldn't tell, <laughs> right? But I would write it down because I was not a natural classroom manager. I you know I had been I was a perfect little angel my entire life, right? I was prototypical goody two shoes. I was always on high alert to make sure: Am I doing just what I was supposed to be doing? Am I making everybody happy? And so it never occurred to me that people would come into my classroom and not behave the way I had behaved. So I really wasn't ready to manage it. So I did. I had to, I had to like write reminders for myself or put up symbols, uh, little stickies with, with little symbols to, to remind myself of things. So that's like a very practical approach to, to parenting. That's like, okay, we've got 20 minutes. Let's, let's rehearse the scene. So I'm going to come in and I'm going to slam the door and, you know, and sometimes we'll be in therapy and, and I'll be say, I'll say, okay, I'll come in and slam the door. And, you know, you'll see the parent have that visceral reaction of like, don't do that to me. And I'm like, okay, so breathe through it because I'm going to slam the door. And they'll take the deep breath. Now, what can you say? Like, this isn't a child you can reason with. Isn't a child you can punish right now. They're in full-blown emotional state, and they've been waiting. They have been waiting to come through that door to lose it, right? Whatever they're mad about has been building up all day long. And now they're finally home safe with you, where they can be completely messy and be completely unreasonable and outrageous and you're their parent, you still have to love them. So what do you want to say and what do you want to do? So that's a pretty, like just learning how to breathe, what to say, and the following, you know, teaching the skill of active listening. I do a lot of time with my parents on, on communication skills because especially with their older kids, that's what it comes down to. Right. I mean, in general, we know relationship comes down to how do we how do we communicate with somebody? How how do how do we meet with somebody? So the parents ability to go like and I have I have a skill and I call it a skill. I have a skill that I call match the mojo because when the door slams, your own 
blood pressure pops up. So you're in an elevated state, but instead of going, don't you dare, how dare you, we, you know, go back through that door and come out with closing the door. Instead, we're going to say, you're really mad and upset, aren't you? So we match the mojo, but then we can bring it down. Tell me about it. Tell me what's got you so mad. Mrs. Stitt really pissed you off, didn't she? Do you want a snack? You want to come tell me about it? Or do you need some time in your room to cool off? So if I match the mojo, I do two things. One, we kind of have that parasympathetic nervous system going. And that's a good first response because my own system, my, my own connection between prefrontal cortex and amygdala has broken for a moment. So... When I'm up here, it gives me a chance to have my brain kind of come back together again. So then I can bring it down to here, and I can bring it down to here, and I can bring it down to here. So that's a skill, right? It's something we can practice. We can script it out. We can imagine it. We can set up the neural pathways so that now maybe... You know, two times out of 10, we meet our child here. And then four times out of 10, we can meet them here rather than way up there. And we can bring it down. And so we move from, we move towards that unconscious competence in using the skill. Yeah, that sounds like a fantastic skill. So yeah. you're saying that if a child is worked up, then for a moment, you kind of match them to just sort of jolt them out of their heightened state? It's, it's just sort of to say, I get it. You're really upset. Mm-hmm. Like, I see you. And I don't, I don't go above them for sure. And I maybe don't even come right to them. I might just come right underneath them. Yeah. And then as I step down, it invites them kind of step down too to keep up with me because I've met them up here, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes it works for, if we really are feeling calm, like as a teacher, I just had to deal with it so many more times, right? I got so much more practice (laughs) with, you know, I had, I had, I had 12 years of 12 year olds, So I got a ton of practice of kids coming in and being mad about something. So I was much more able to kind of look over and go like, bad day, Whitney, without myself getting it. But if, if my own body is having that reaction, and of course with our own child, we are more in tuned. So we are much more likely to get there anyway. Yeah. So if we could do it as a kind of energetic match rather than like, I'm going to come down on you hard match because you've just violated my physical space. You violated my sense of myself as, as being a mother who has a child who doesn't slam doors, doesn't call people bitches, right? All that stuff triggers. Mm-hmm. And so if I can kind of meet you up here, it helps me then come down a step and come down a step. And that encourages the child to follow. Yeah. So that, that makes me wonder, Elizabeth, you mentioned, you know, you, when it's our own child and you being a parent, 
what led you into this work and maybe share what was your experience of being a, a parent? Because you were you a teacher before you became a parent or after? Thank God. <laughs> Thank God I get to practice on other people's children. Okay. So you were, you, you were a teacher first. Tell I us, was. share with us your timeline of sort of what, what did you, where did you yeah. start your career? What was it? And, and actually I would say that for whatever reason, I, you know, instead of going to Sunday at school at church, I went down and I played with the toddlers and in the, in the, in the toddler classroom and in third and fourth grade, I spent every recess tutoring the first and second graders. And in fifth grade, I was a mother's helper. And by sixth grade, you know, because in those days, an 11-year-old could go and babysit anybody. And so by sixth grade, I was babysitting a couple times a week easily. I had some regular jobs, and then I usually did a Friday or Saturday night job too. And by ninth grade, when we were t- learning how to write research papers and we could write on any topic we wanted to write on, guess what I wrote on? Parenting? How to be an effective parent. That was the title of my ninth grade research paper. So, <laughs> oh my gosh, you were born for this. You were a little coach in a ninth grade body. Yeah. So I think that to some degree, I was always thinking about what what was effective. How could I engage with children in a way? And when I was a mother's helper, it was actually super good training because she was an artist and she had her, her artist studio was a room right off the kitchen. And so like the whole time I'm, I was trying to think like the whole name of the game was to keep the kids happy enough that they didn't go knock on their mother's door. Because if they knocked on the mother's door, I had failed. Right? I had failed to give her that time to be in her creative space. And I suppose I could have gotten it. I could have done it by, you know, giving in and letting them watch TV or feeding them sweets or something. But as a fifth grader, I think I was still young enough that I did it through playfulness and uh, through manipulation. <laughs> And so I got really good at, at, at that. I got really good at, you know, how do you be playful with kids and lighthearted with kids uh, as a way of kind of manipulating their feelings and, and, and helping them feel, feel that. Yeah. So then, yeah, I was a camp counselor for six summers. And then I started teaching. And my, my first full-time teaching job was in 1990. Uh, January of 1990, and my daughter wasn't born until 96. So I had a good chunk of time to um, get things wrong with other people's children. (laughs) Uh, It didn't mean that I wasn't triggered by my own kid. She she was a very strong-willed child. She had a little friend. She had a little friend, Frida. They were born like four days apart. And, you know, you would say something to Frida like, Frida, don't touch. That's just for grown-ups. Don't touch. And she would look at you and she'd go. And <laughs> just give you this very solid look. And she would look at like the stereo or something. And she'd look, but she wouldn't touch it. <laughs> no. And 
I'd say, I'd say to Julie, don't touch. And she'd be like, you know, like, really? What are you going to do? What's going to happen? What's going to and in some ways, I think it was testing. She really wanted to know where the boundaries were. But in some ways, it was just, she's a, a, a neuroscientist now, right? Oh. So, so in some ways, she was literally just testing. Yeah, like, testing, curious. Yeah, like just like, really? <laughs> really? Really? Like, will it work every single time? And I thank all the powers in the world that be that I had some practice as a classroom teacher at setting and holding limits um, because she needed them for sure. She, she needed somebody to just be present with her, but to be super clear and to just hold the limits. So you, you had some experience and you had a lot of training to be a mom. What were the things that kind of threw you off? What were the things that kind of caught you off guard or what did you find most challenging? And that I would imagine it between being a teacher and then being a mom, inspired you to eventually be a coach? Because I feel like you kind of were putting these things together. Like, okay, this is hard and this was hard. And I see that things can be more seamless and easier. I want to do that. What was it that you faced that most kind of impacted you? Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, it was some of the external external things. So my husband and I, Julie's dad and I divorced. Um, we were separated when she was like two and three quarters. So a lot of the struggle for me was this internal struggle, was the guilt of not having the perfect family, of not modeling a marriage and a good relationship, of putting her in a situation like you cannot, you cannot make up for the fact, like there's nothing you can do to make up for the fact that you have now condemned a child to living her life 50% between two different houses which is a stressor and which says that for the rest of your life, you don't get to experience your mom and your dad at the same time. So that's pretty guilt inducing, right? It's pretty hard to say like, I am a good mom. Oh yeah. I'm half responsible for putting you in a situation where you have to go back and forth between two houses. You don't get to put your, head down on the same pillow every night. You have to keep track of, you know, is my winter coat, did I leave it at daddy's house? Should have I remembered it? Now I'm cold at mom's house. Um, So a lot of my struggles as a parent were kind of around those, those sort of more existential questions. And then, you know, I eventually remarried. And so then there's a lot of questions of like, well, that puts a lot of stress, you know, blending a family. I don't think there's anything harder than blending a family. So blending a family, it's like, well, is this good for her? Am I being selfish? Am I only thinking of me and my romantic interest? Or, you know, is this, is this going to serve her? Is this going to be something good for her? So a lot of existential angst. Um, I was pretty good at the day-to-day parenting. I had a lot of practice, right? I just, you know, I had had like one of the things that I work with my parents on is that ability to use your body and your voice and your imagination to get your child's cooperation. And, you know, a lot of parents maybe know what to say, 
but they say it with the wrong voice. They get mad. They get, uh, it's still edgy. And again, it's just a skill, like the skill of being able to drop down into this, I am calm, but I'm also really clear. We're done. Now it is time for bed. Right? So there's just something about that. I mean, if you think about, I think about an actor on a stage, I think a lot of parenting is a con game. It's a lot of it is like, how, you know, showing up and how you're acting. And I don't mean that in a false way any more than an actor who is truly embodying their part feels that they're being fake, right? A great actor feels that they are absolutely being real in that moment that they are acting it. Mm-hmm. They are that person. So when I can step up and be that parent who is standing in my parenting power, who is 100% confident that this is what is going to happen right now, then every cell in my body sort of exudes that energy. And then kids, kids cooperate. Like they feel that that helps them settle down. They kind of know where they can push limits and where they can't anymore. And so they don't bother to push them so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, you bring up two powerful points because I imagine that, you know, when you talk about the guilt, I feel like parent guilt is probably a pretty strong thing that people experience because it's different to feel guilt around something that we feel maybe we, we feel guilt around a decision we made that impacted us, maybe it impacted someone else, but mostly we're, as before we become parents, we think about just how our own actions and how they, you know, affect our lives and maybe some people around us. But as a parent, you're thinking about, you know, we know that there's a high rate of divorce and separation and remarriage, you know, life happens, but then you're suddenly thinking this is directly impacting the most important person in my life, which was my child, you know? And so that guilt and also thinking, my choices, my actions, how much I work, how much I don't work, how much I can provide is not just about me anymore. It's about the well-being of this this child, this individual, this new life. And that's a that's yeah. a tra- challenging thing. I like that you point that out because I I think that you know guilt can kind of be like this this sort of thing in the shadows that we just have a heavy sense of. Which I think it almost connects to your next point. I think it can keep us from feeling in our power as a parent. It's okay to feel guilt, right? We all feel it sometimes, but just like we can't let it hold us back from being the person we want to be, it, I would imagine you coach parents on how guilt doesn't have to hold them from back from being the most amazing in their power parent they can be. Yes, yes. Right, I mean, I always say guilt is a super useful emotion as like the flag goes up, right? But think about it. Like think about when, when like if you're playing soccer or something, the flag goes up. We stop, we examine the situation, we make a determination. The flag goes down, the play goes on, mm-hmm. right? So what doesn't serve us is having the flag up. All the time. <laughs> Just flying all the time, right? Because then we don't, then we're always reacting from a place of guilt, from, from the emotion of guilt, rather from, than from the reason of, what is actually going to serve the, the better good in this situation? And of course, one of the inherent difficulties of parenting is that, especially if you have more than one child, you're having to weigh relative good. 
right? Because what's best for this child may not be best for this child. And yet this child's needs might be more demanding. Might be, might be it's part of the reason that, I mean, even if you have a special needs child who is an only child, um, that is hard, but you don't have the added guilt of how do I serve, you know, how do I serve Joey while Timmy is, has to be fed his meals for the next 16 years? And how is, you know, my having to feed Timmy holding, holding him back and holding back what I could do? That I think is that, that again, it's, it's hard not to feel guilty. But to kind of step up, and then actually, when I do, when I do have time to be present with my other child, to really be present with them, not overlaid by guilt, because then otherwise, like spending time with somebody feels guilty. Like, you know how it gets tainted. I'm not being very articulate. Can you help me out? You're good. I got you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so. And then this is like, this is the way I feel about, about working parents. And actually, this is an interesting study they did at some point. They were comparing, they were trying to determine the effects of child care on um, little kids' development, like zero to three. Mm-hmm. And here's what they found. Once the level of child care is meets a threshold... Right. Once you have attentive, caring givers with clean, calm spaces, with systems and routines for everything. So we have a basic threshold of competent child care. Once you reach that threshold, then the biggest factor on whether or not a child thrived in that environment was not how many days a week, not how many hours in the day, but it was how does the parent feel about having their child in childcare. So if the parent was clear, Mm. I'll just use mom, if the parent was clear in herself that it's important for me to work, I like working, I wanna set the example of being a working woman. I am making a difference to my company or in the world or in our family, in the resources that we have this is a good thing for me to be doing. Then her attitude about childcare was childcare is a, is a piece of that plan. Childcare is what makes that happen. And it's great that you baby have these wonderful, patient, kind caregivers to give you what you need while I'm off going and doing what I need to do so that then when we come home together, I can be present with you. I I think that's a super important idea. Yeah. Right? Our own sense of having thought something through and the rightness of something admits this clarity and this sense of security. Yeah. Kids don't know. (laughs) They don't 
don't know how things should be. Yeah. Right? Well, we set the tone for that. And they, they, they sense that kids are very sensitive to emotions and feelings. I mean, that, you know, they will say that to your point from zero to three, the first few years of your life is when a lot of sort of the greatest sources of, of shame or core beliefs could be established because we're so sensitive to those around us and how they act towards us. And they're emotive energies and tendencies that it really, it, it gives us a sense of what we believe. Cause we, when children believe what their parents believe for the most yeah. part, because they're their caregivers, they're the ones around them. Yeah. And, but again, it's not just in what they say, it's what they do and how they act. So just as you expressed, when someone holds a true belief, it emanates from them. Yes. I, I have great faith in what I do and I'm, I feel good about being hard at work because then I can provide for my family and I know, but when there's a sense of guilt, we all know what it's like to be around somebody who's anxious. Even yeah. as we get older, I think it's, we can still sense it, but as children, again, they're so sensitive that they can sense when there's, you know, just like animals, animals will know when you're anxious pets, they'll be like, I don't want to be around this one right now. She's all crazy. Cause they can feel it. And kids too, they'll be like, Oh, this doesn't feel good. You know? And that's why it, you know, the, the way that what's going on in a household, you know, it impacts a child. And I think that, and you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that parents may sometimes often think that it's best to keep things kind of hidden and like um, compartmentalized from their children. But I think that kids notice that when it's like, okay, there's one thing that they show us, but there's something else going on. And I, it's not impossible to do, but you have to be super clear and feel good about the choice that that's what you're doing, right? So yeah. you, you may have an enormous amount of stress at work. And there may be a lot going on there and maybe you're in conflict and maybe you're not sure that you like this job and maybe, you you know, your boss is behaving beyond the pale and you've got all this going on, but you have some kind of ritual for yourself or something that you can do. Uh, my daughter went to the Peninsula School, the crunchy granola school, which was just dirt. And so it was often muddy. And <laughs> just really, all dirt. It was. It was, it was. It was concrete, <laughs> right? It was all dirt. So, like, even at the best of times, if you came in with your work clothes, I had kind of this ritual of taking off my my teaching shoes and putting on my uh, my old sneakers that I had in the car, and I had a big old flannel shirt that I would put over over my my teaching clothes because I was kind of like, and that process, that sort of two, three minutes before I went in to pick my daughter up was like this costume change. Mm -hmm. It was like, okay, everything that just happened at the staff meeting is now not there anymore. Now I'm putting on my mom costume and now I'm going to show up and be mom. Yeah. But you, but you kind of have to be clear with yourself. Yeah. It it makes you think of embodiment if we kind of think of it as like, yeah, in that sense, it's if you're embodying what you believe, then you'll be able to, like, you can make that switch, but truly not just kind of tell yourself on the surface, but actually embody that, feel it, know yeah. it, believe it, then it's different. Right. And that's why I say that, that, you know, parenting is like acting, but in the best sense. Right. Right. Because you said that a, a, the best actors truly believe that they are the character that they're in for that yeah. moment in that time. So exactly. if you truly believe that you're stepping in to mom role, then, but how do you help people do that? How, if, you know, when people are used to just like phoning it in and just trying to do their best to act a certain way, how do you get them from pr projecting to actually embodying? Well, 
I, I mean, when I first meet with parents, I think of it as putting all the puzzle pieces on the table. And again, sometimes we just have to go to like nuts and bolts. Let's make things easier. Like, let's say that a parent hadn't figured out that you need an extra pair of shoes in the back and you need to have a big overgarment that you don't care about. Otherwise, if you're coming in with your crisp white blouse and you're coming into the childcare where they've been doing finger painting or Play-Doh or something else, you're going to have this immediate tension, right? Your need to keep your shirt unstained is going to be an immediate conflict with your child's, the state you can expect your child to be in at the end of, of, of a day, right? And so to me, that's low-hanging fruit. That's a practical solution that now erases that tension. I now don't have the tension because I have on my old shirt. I'm happy to go in and pick my kid up, up and give my kid a big squeeze and have them wrap around me because I don't have to worry about my work shirt. So it, for me, it's this combination of let's find concrete practical solutions. Let's rehearse and actually learn skills where we need them. One of my favorite skills for parents um, is one of, the, like, one of my themes with parents is set your kids up for success. One of the ways we set our kids up for success is we help them anticipate what is it going to look like, feel like, be like when X happens. Um, you know, low-hanging fruit. Don't take a child under five into the market anytime between like 4.30 and dinner time. You're just setting yourself up and you're setting them up and it's not fair, right? Don't do it. <laughs> Order from Amazon. Do all your shopping on Saturday. Reach for a can of soup. But don't put yourself through that you know, it's about to explode moment. Like you can't expect a little kid to go into a store at the end of a day when they're emotionally depleted, they're hungry, and now they see, and the store has been super smart about putting the, the yummy thing, the play thing right at their eye level so that whether they're sitting in a cart or walking alongside you, I want, I can grab it. Now you're having a fight. No, we're not buying that. Like, just don't do it. And if you absolutely have to do it, do it the same way every time. Like, set your kids up like a rehearsal. Like, okay, we're going to a store. How do we behave at a store? Where, you know, where are you going to sit, stand? How are you going to walk? How are we going to use our voices? Who's going to do what? Are we going to, are we going to buy anything that's on our shopping, not on our shopping list? Nope. So if you see something that's not on our shopping list, we can put it on our, on our I wish list, but we're not getting it today. So what's the rule? Where does it go if you want it? It goes on the I wish list. Are we getting it today? No, not today. We'll get it some other day. Right? So no. now I'm supporting my child, even if they are depleted, even if it is the end of the day. 
in showing up the very best way they can. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like sort of practicing and preparing for situations that you know you'll encounter is such your first success, just like everything else in life. But as you know, it sounds like with parents, like, cause you know, you know that you're going to have to go grocery shopping and you know, you have some options. Okay. Either I can just wing it and go during this, you know, this window four to eight. And I know it's going to be chaos and havoc. Maybe I can avoid that and keep my sanity today and keep, so it sounds like you work with parents to really kind of look at, okay, life is made up of a lot of different scenarios in one 24 hour period. What can I do to reduce the times where it seems like there's like spikes in disagreements, arguments, challenging times, and reduce that and kind of address things in a way that keeps it more pleasant, balanced. Right. In that way. Right. And sometimes as coach, you're just being there as being the empathetic receptacle, right? Yeah. And, you know, and the parents going like, I knew I shouldn't have done it. And I knew they would be tired, but I hadn't gone to the shopping and I'm <laughs> feeling so guilty that we're eating frozen food and I just needed to go get something from the store and it was so bad and I was so embarrassed. And you're just sitting there going, I know, I get it, I hear you. And just like when the child has their tantrum, it's like the storm clouds, right? It's like the pressure builds in the child, the child has the tantrum. And then it's like the storm clouds clear and you kind of have a relaxed child again. So sometimes the value of coaching, because we, this is why one of the reasons parenting is so much harder is we don't have those built-in sort of times and people to do that offloading, right? Mm -hmm. So when more moms were at home, you had more of a scenario where, you know, you'd drop your kids at school and you'd come back. And then maybe around 10 in the morning, you would go to your neighbor's house and sit at their kitchen and have, have a cup of coffee with them. And that would give you a chance to go like, oh my God, Whitney, you should have seen Tommy running around the house last night. It, nudie boy, creating chaos. I mean, it was funny, but it can't happen again. What am I going to do? And then maybe you have some great idea for me. Or even if you don't have some idea for me, you are able to pat me and go like, boy, that's a tough one. I don't know, but I know you'll figure it out because you're smart. Right? And now I am, my cup is getting filled. My parenting cup is getting filled. My emotional reserve is getting filled so that when it happens again, I have more wherewithal to deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. And Elizabeth, I'd be curious to hear what, what do you think are, cause you sound like general challenges that have been around since the dawn of time. They look different. It used to not be a supermarket. People just had to go out and hunt their food, but these have been around forever. What would you say are some of the, like the modern challenges? I mean, especially like, I mean, we could talk about the last few decades, but like just in these past few years where so much has changed, obviously because of the pandemic, but then there's also like the growth of technology. I I, I look, so I'm, I'm anti-wit to a lot of my friends, children, my brothers don't have kids yet, but I'm, you know, an honorary aunt to my friends, kids. And I just see the draw towards electronics, right? Towards the iPad, the iPhone, all these things. And and it's, it's one of the things that freaks me out the most about being a parent is like, I don't know how I would deal with that because 
you know, you, you don't want to expose them too much, but it's like, they really, really want it. And it also like is very calming for them and they're very engaged in it. And it gives a parent a time to breathe and be human. So I'd be curious about your take on that. And also just, again, just additional modern challenges that parents face that they maybe didn't two years ago, five years ago, 20 years ago. Okay. Yeah. So there's a whole, there's kind of a list of things. That's that came, some of it, some of it's dominoes, right? So as families got busier, as women went working into the workforce and we, we all got busier along the same time, sort of seventies into eighties, one of the other things that happened was that middle management jobs ended up, a lot of them going overseas. And so a fear came up in the country. There was a report that came out, um, I think in 1986, called A Nation at Risk. And what it suggested was that the United States, compared to other first world countries, we were behind in our STEM skills. And so there became this fear that there's going to be a slice of people at the top who are really, really rich and really, really have the power. And there's going to be a big swath at the bottom that are basically in service jobs. And to some degrees, that is what has happened. Yeah, sounds a little familiar. Right? <laughs> Just a little. So for all those people in the middle for whom, like, oh, well, it was good enough for me, it will be good enough for my kid, there was this fear that whatever the it was is no longer going to be good enough. Like if I had a factory job, I might be afraid that like, there's not going to be a factory anymore. I've got to start pushing my kid. So this was one of the reasons then that we started pushing our kids and trying to fit them into that little narrow space at the top. And so we were demanding more. Colleges were demanding more of high schools. High schools began demanding more of middle schools, middle schools on down, which is why the curriculum has shifted almost a full year. So what used to be taught in first grade is pretty much what's being taught in kindergarten right now. It's why we um, have kindergartners doing homework, which didn't used to be a thing. So why does that make parenting harder? Well, it makes parenting harder for a couple of reasons. One, kids are not getting the developmental time they need to just go play. Right. And, you know, as a psychologist, as a therapist, you know, the social, emotional, cognitive benefits of play. So kids partly aren't getting those benefits because they are scheduled into activities. Right. They're sitting down, they're doing more homework, but they're also in their free time. They are going to chess club. They are going to Russian math camp or Kumon, they are studying the violin, they are maybe they're playing soccer, but it's not a pickup game of free-for-all little kids running around hitting the soccer ball. It's lining up drills, listening, controlling their bodies. So they're not getting what they need developmentally. Socially, emotionally, so their bodies are getting bigger their social emotional development 
on the whole wasn't coming up. I mean, if you go into, you and I are in Silicon Valley or, you know, now extended Silicon Valley. But if you go into a, a nursery school, and I've heard this from nursery school teaching friends in other parts of the country, there are no longer neurotypical kids. Like neurotypical is the exception now because developmentally kids aren't getting what they used to get. So then you add to that the technology piece. Do you know that um, kids entering kindergarten today have are two years behind the vocabulary development that they used to have by entering kindergarten? Really? Two years. They're only five years old. Because they're not interacting as much? Because they're not interacting as much. Because they're the, the vocabulary being fed to them is very um, contained, right? It's, it's not, nobody's, nobody's, my seventh graders used to say to me, you know, all the time, I would, I would say something like, you know, stop being so obstreperous. And they'd be like, oh, do you have to use words we don't understand? <laughs> and I'd be like, yeah. Like, how are you behaving right now? Um, I'm being a pain in the neck. I'm like, yes, you are being obstreperous. Right. And so, you know, it's through interactions with lots of different environments and different people and different kinds of texts, different media that our vocabulary expands. And if there's no one-on-one adult time, think about, uh, I, maybe someday you'll have a baby. Maybe someday you'll have this experience. Or maybe, you know, you'll, one of your, one of your honorary nieces or nephews will be left with you or your real niece or nephew will be left with you. And all of a sudden you'll have to really assume the role. You know, one of the things that parents do, and I think, and I wonder, I'm wondering if this has changed because we ourselves probably have our earbuds in. So like we might be caring for baby and we might be going through our tasks, but we're probably have our earbuds in and are really listening to that. Well, pre-earbud days, when you are home with baby, it is boring. <laughs> it's boring to be at home with a baby. And so you find yourself narrating stuff. I used to put the put her in the the front pack. And, you know, she'd be hanging out and looking at stuff. And I'd be like, okay, now we're going to get the plates down. And, oh, that water's too hot. We need to turn, balance it out with some cold. Now we're going to scrub. We need some suds, right? Suds, that's a different word than soap. That's a different word than bubble. And as we're narrating, we're actually feeding all of this vocabulary as we go through our day. Yeah. And kids are not getting that. Because even in the best of childcare situations, things, the environment has to be pretty tight and contained in order to make it work. And you have, I, I remember uh, when my daughter was two, you know, sort of two, one, two, I would go and I would take a look and see what she was doing. And if she was engaged, I would nip in to the infants. And I would hang out and I would play with the infants for a while because otherwise it was like one caregiver and she'd have four babies in front of her and she would, you know, inevitably she would be feeding one, trying to talk to the other or changing one. And it was like, I don't know, like those spinning plates, you know, like the circus when they keep the plates spinning. It's like, I can't ever give one plate my undivided attention. 
Yeah. I have to spin this one and then this one and then this one and this one. And that's a very different environment for a little brain to develop in than one mother and, and, and even, you know, even if you have more children, um, most parents don't have quadruplets. Most parents aren't doing the same parenting task with the same four children at once. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so the development isn't happening. And so this is one of our stressors as a modern day parent that, uh, kind of what we would expect, what, what can a five, six, seven, eight, nine year old do? It's more like quicksand because there's a much, we're not kind of getting that same kind of markers. So that's one of the reasons that parenting is harder. Yeah. And how do you help parents in those situations with those challenges? I mean, sometimes it's hard as a balance because I want to lecture, but people don't come to me for lectures. They come to me for support. Yeah. Um, so a lot of times it's inviting them or just kind of asking them to consider the question of going like, you know, I know how tired you are. I know how exhausted you are when you come home from work. And I'm just curious whether you can think of some way that you might, you know, carve out more time to just hang out and play and be present with your child or to bring your child into what you're doing. So, you know, instead of putting them in the, in the high chair, in the swing, in the playpen, so with the iPad, putting the iPad in front of them, you know, maybe having one of those uh, platform stools that comes up to the counter and letting them, you know, letting them mush something up or having a plastic knife and letting them cut something so that you're right there alongside them and you can be talking to them about mm-hmm. what they're doing. So gently, I think, is the answer, Mike. Just trying to create a little space because they're feeling so drained and so defeated and overwhelmed. And like, this is impossible. It's too much to carry. And then I read these things where you're supposed to do this and this and this. And so now I feel guilty yeah, because I'm just too tired to do it. So, yeah. And to that point, you know, I want to kind of, tie things up and say that Elizabeth, what I'm, everything that I'm hearing from you when you're talking is that I feel like when parents come to work with you, you know, I imagine that parents get a lot of ideas about what they're supposed to do, but it sounds like you really work with parents on what they can do as themselves, as their own, with their own inherent gifts and abilities and values and really maintaining who they are without being too overwhelmed by, okay, I'm supposed to follow this list and those directions. It's like, well, who are you? Because just like anything else in life, it doesn't matter how, you know, this person or that person did something. All that matters is how you can do it most effectively. Right. And it sounds like with joyful parenting, you're really helping people see you are a unique parent, all your own, different from anybody else who's ever going to do it or ever has done it. So let's figure out what that is and see how you can, and feel good about it. You know, again, that's what I love about your work and your approach is like, feel good about it. Feel good about who you are as a parent. Feel good about parenting, have fun with it. You know, cause I, I, I hear a lot and maybe you can attest that once your kid grows up, you kind of, you miss it a little, maybe somewhat when they were little, (laughs) you're like, yes, yes, yeah. 
So it's why not be able to savor it and enjoy it in the times when it's actually happening by, I think a lot of it is by releasing guilt, you know, again, like letting it come up, but not like, you know, holding that flag up forever and, you know, letting go of comparison probably, and really just owning into what's the parent that I can be, Yep. not the parent that I should be, or that I want to be like. And, and trusting that you are the parent your child needs. Yeah. And that, that, that there is some, I, this is one of the most comforting things I read when I was pregnant. I was sitting in the doctor's office and at like the back of one of these parenting magazines, there was this essay and the essay talked about the idea that the soul of the child chooses the parents. Now you're talking my language. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's I, cool. That's what it is. It's how we, we arrange it ahead of time. So it literally is meant for you. That that soul is coming in just to be with you, to learn and grow with you, which as, as you kind of you know, pointed out, and which I believe in is some of the greatest growth happens from challenges. You know, growth doesn't happen without that. And so we're not even meant to be a perfect parent because otherwise, how would you learn? If everything was like this easy, breezy path, there would never be any growth or learning. You're learning right along with your child. Your child is learning right, right along with you. Yes. Yes, exactly. And sometimes my daughter and I would kind of joke about it because I would be like, clearly you feel like I'm not the parent you need right now, <laughs> but you chose me for some reason. So what do you think the lesson is here? Like, what do you, why do you think we're in this situation? Yeah. You know, and sometimes she'd be like, oh man, what did I choose you for? <laughs> oh, what a sad thing to hear. But I think, I think a lot, most people have heard that. I'm pretty sure I said that to my parent. Like, I didn't want this. How do I get a? How do I sign up for a new, I'm leaving. I used to always, that was my big stick when I was a kid is I would be like, I'm packing up. I'd have a little Barbie suitcase. I would yeah. pack it up and I'd run away to the bush in front of our house. There you go. <laughs> I'm out of here. You guys suck. I'm going to go find a better one. Yeah. But that's just kids, right? We're just being defined. We don't know. And you know, we always come back. No. Well, and at the end of the day, we, <laughs> we have our own distinct personalities and our parents have their own distinct personalities. And mm. One of the things, this is, I was literally just writing about this in my blog this week. I taught the whole seventh grade, which meant that every, you know, if there was a family with three kids, first I'd get, first I'd get Sarah and then I'd get Sally and then I'd get Cynthia. And so I would get to see how was the parent, Mm. a different parent with yeah. Sally than she was with Cynthia than she was with Sarah. Mm-hmm. And that taught me a lot about this, about that piece of the relationship. It's not just parent child. It's, uh, you know, mom with, you know, I don't know, whatever, whatever personality measure you want to use, whether you want to do it in astrological terms or whether you want to do it in, in Myers Briggs terms or, yeah. you know, Enneagram terms or something, the the way that, you know, the way that a Virgo inter, you're a Virgo, right? Yes. Right? So the way that a Virgo interacts with a Gemini is different than the way that a Virgo, yep, interacts with an Aries. And so because of that, you're going to work out different things with me as your child. And you're going to be pushed in different ways and you're going to have different parts of yourself exposed than you are with your Aries child. Your Aries child is going to push different buttons. 
And so that was a really, that's, that was a valuable, a very valuable perspective. And it was really a privilege to kind of get to see that and to be able to see it in motion and to think about it and, and to be able to realize somehow like where, wait a minute, this is, this is about this combination. Like this isn't about just this child. This is about this combination. Yeah. And it would be fun too because I'd see the dads as well. And usually mom and dad didn't have the easy relationship with the same child. Oh, interesting. Right? Usually it was different. Wow. Because it's a different combination, right? Yeah. Different, different people. Personalities, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, um, it's, it really sounds, Elizabeth, like your, your work really just set you up with such a unique perspective and what you saw over the years to become the coach that you are now. Very seasoned, very, you know, thoughtful and thorough in your understanding, you know, as a teacher and a mom and and all the above. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So thank you so much for sharing about your work and this amazing perspective. I feel like we could go on for a long time. You know, you obviously you're very well-versed on this subject. So it's so fun to hear from you. And I know people will appreciate it. If people do want to work with you and if they're curious about getting a coach for parenting, how can they find you and learn more about you? Because I know you've done lots of different shows and you're a speaker and you have your own YouTube. So how can we find you? Uh, my website is just my name. It's not Joyful Parenting. It's okay. elizabethstitt.com. And it's Elizabeth with an S. It's Elizabeth with an S. Yes, thank It'll you. It'll be in the show notes, but we're just, I'm just clarifying. Yep, thank you for remembering. If you go looking for Elizabeth, I don't think there is an elizabethstitt.com with a Z. Um, okay. Yeah, my email is elizabethstitt.com and there is an elizabethstitt.com with, with a Z. <laughs> Isn't that, is that weird? And it turns out she's a teacher too. Oh my gosh, a parallel universe with the yeah. Z, Elizabeth. Exactly, the Z. <laughs> um, right, lots of free resources. Um, yes, of, you have uh, fantastic resources. They're great. Um, yeah, and then the advantage of one-on-one coaching is really um, the efficiency of it. Yes. Right, the match between... I mean, I've got a really deep bag of, of tricks sitting over here. <laughs> a literal bag of tricks? No. <laughs> bag of tricks. But, you know, the point is, is that when you bring a situation, I, I can, when I reach into the bag, I'm re- doing so with a, with a lot of context and a lot of kind of big picture knowledge. And the chances yeah. of finding the tool that's going to work for you are maybe higher than you going online and Googling something and reading something. Yes. Not maybe, almost certainly. Certainly. <laughs> almost certainly. Of course. Yeah. Of um, course. And it's not to say that it's not to say that I don't get things wrong sometimes. Like sometimes I say, I think this would work. Would you give it a try? And they come back and they're like, uh, no. Well, like, what works okay. for one person isn't gonna work for everyone. No, so then we try to parenting. Yeah, then you just try something else. That's the I feel like that's strategy. That's what coaching is about is hey, here's something, this might work for you. Let's try it. If it doesn't, I got something else for you. You know, one size doesn't fit all. That's why your approach is cool because it's a tailored approach. You're not just going to like drop up, you know, here's this, try it, best of luck. It's like, let's tailor the situation for you. And that's when the best work happens is when people are really seen and heard for their experience and someone's going to work with them on that in that way. And, you know, I think when you're looking for a parenting coach too, the good news is that when we're not busy promoting ourselves 
and we're just talking parenting, mm-hmm. we, we really have a really kind of common core understanding of what's good for kids and supportive for families. Yeah. But then we all bring our own flavor to it, right? So it's like, we are ice cream. Ice cream is fundamentally a good thing. Like, go ice cream. <laughs> but then when you're looking for a coach, you can, you know, do you want a conscious parenting, a gentle parenting, a proactive parent, a, a joyful parent? Um, and you're going to get different flavors of ice cream. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a great thing. That's a really cool thing about having a lot of different parenting coaches is that you can kind of decide what your need is. And yeah, like with me, I want to have fun. Yeah. Like if I'm not having fun, then the, the coaching process gets bogged down. And that can mean that I'm a little silly and a little hyper. And so if you're completely put off by silly and hyper, go find somebody else. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Right? Find somebody that you, I want you to find someone you feel comfortable with because that's what you're going to make the most progress with. Yeah. And I love that you're able to say that, Elizabeth, because that that's the case. I mean, I feel like anyone who steps into their, you know, their own offering, an independent, you know, contractor offering something is you do kind of at a certain point. Um, I know, you know, as a therapist, I had to recognize that, but I think we all go through a time where like, well, I want to be able to work with everybody. I want to, I want to be what everybody wants, but we very quickly learn that that's just not possible. It's not realistic, not in any way in life, not in relationships, not in friendships, not with work, not with, you know, clients, it's just not going to happen. So in a, we have to honor our own unique flavor, our own zest, the way that we come across. Cause people are, there's going to be some people who are like, I do want to be with someone that just makes this feel a little bit lighter. That doesn't make parenting yeah. feel like this, oh, yeah. like, like this really strict regimented thing that I have to get right. And you're like, no, it's not about getting it right. It's about finding your joy in it, which means being true, like bringing your truth forward and being able to work with that, present with that, do what works best for you. Yeah, exactly. And just have some fun. Have fun. Have fun. It's always important. Joy. I've had so many people from different walks of life on this show who will say the purpose of life is joy, is to find your joy, is to have joy. That's mm-hmm. it. It is said that like that's when you feel joy, that's literally literally your soul expressing. And that's so it just shows you that that's really what we're meant to do here. It's not meant to be so serious. Life itself or parenting doesn't have yeah. to be so serious. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. a very profound thing. But even profound things can have great joy in them. The greatest of joy. The greatest. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Elizabeth, this has been so much fun to have you on the show. I'm sure I will see you soon for a walk on the beautiful beach. I hope. (laughs) See you there soon. So thanks for being on the show and take care. And all your your links and notes will be in the show notes so people can, uh, can find you. Sounds good. All right. Bye. That wraps up our beautiful conversation with our wonderful guests. Thank you so much for listening to the Women Waken podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with others and come back for more. If anything you heard resonates, leave a review or send me an email at Whitney at womenwaken.com and check out the website, womenwaken.com. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And don't forget to let your light shine and keep an eye out for your special gifts and magic.